Support for Innovation Hub comes from the Museum of Science in Boston, working to inspire everyone to push the boundaries of what's possible through hands-on exhibits, interactive programs, K-12 engineering curricula, and educator resources. Learn more at mos.org. Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. The gap between the rich and the poor in America, both the gap in money and the gap in opportunity, has become such a concern in recent years It's now, strangely, a kind of pet cause for billionaires, and they want to show us they care. We don't need to have the extremes of inequality that we have, and and I think that a country with $50,000 of GDP per capita should have a a greater, the, the people at the bottom end should be doing better. That's the billionaire investor Warren Buffett, called the Oracle of Omaha. And he's arguing all the way back in 2013 that the government needs to do more to help. That same year, a New York billionaire argued that indeed the poor were getting shafted, and even as a rich guy, he got that. We're losing our jobs to other countries. We have countries that manipulate their currencies so incredibly well, so much better than we could ever do, and they take our jobs. And my base and the people that like me best, frankly, are poor people and working people, working class people, and I'm very proud of that. I think the people that like me the least are the rich people. That, of course, was our current president, long before he was a contender for the office. This hour, we're going to talk to experts from different fields about where this gap between the well-off and the struggling is really headed, as well as some of the data behind the gap that often doesn't get talked about. In a few minutes, we're going to talk to Alan Baruby, who studies the geography of inequality. But our first data reality check comes from Alexandra Killowald, a professor of sociology at Harvard. She says, we've taken our eyes off the ball. Income inequality actually pales in comparison to another sort of inequality, wealth inequality. It's not what you earn, it's what you have. And if that sounds kind of like splitting hairs, Kilowald says it's not. People can use their wealth to buffer shocks that they experience. So people who find themselves suddenly without a job can draw on their wealth. You also use the things that you buy with your wealth. So your house or your car are some of the key assets that many Americans hold. And then also, of course, wealth is often used to pay for things like retirement and for children's higher education. So the money we have not only changes our lives, but the lives of the people around us, which raises the question, is your money, is your success, your education, is that all baked into the cake? Like you thought you were in charge, but really you were just riding a wave. We all like to think that we control our own lives, but the reality is that the circumstances of your birth, whether it's the race of your parents or it's the economic position of your parents, turns out to matter a lot for the wealth that you achieve. So as a general pattern, if your parents are 10 percentage points higher in the wealth distribution, so going from being right at the average at the 50th percentile up to the 60th percentile, that tends to move you up about four percentage points in the distribution. So it's a pretty strong relationship between your parents' wealth and the wealth you achieve. Now, is that because people are leaving their kids tons of money in their wills? Is that because they're setting them up with really great jobs where they make a ton of money? Like. Why is it that rich people have rich children? It's definitely, to some extent, the passing of money directly across generations. But interestingly, the biggest explanatory role goes to education. So wealthy parents tend to have children who get a four-year college degree. And that could be for any number of reasons. It could be because of providing 
access to higher education through supporting, you know, paying college tuition directly, or it could be something that happens even earlier on by wealthy parents living in neighborhoods with good schools. Schools are a public good that wealthy parents can try to sort of appropriate to themselves the, the benefits of high-quality schools. And give me a sense also, is this true across genders and races, that if you're born to poor parents tend to be poor as you get older, and same on the other side, if you're born rich, that tends to continue on. The pattern is actually pretty different for African Americans. So for whites in general, the wealthier your parents are, the wealthier you are. For African Americans, race has this extra really important role, which is it's still true that the wealthier your parents, the wealthier you are, but the payoffs are just much smaller. So even if you took a white and a black adult who had parents with the same amount of wealth, the white offspring is expected to have higher wealth than the African-American offspring. So at every point of the parental wealth distribution, African-Americans are disadvantaged. And we often refer to that as higher rates of downward mobility across generations for African-Americans. So to go back to something that you said before about higher education, so if you've got poor parents and they sacrifice everything, you know, whatever they can to get their kid a college education, is that the single best thing that they could do? I think that's right. There's a broader finding in the social science literature that conditional on getting that four-year college degree, the gaps in economic outcomes by where you came from are smaller. So among folks who have that four-year degree, it doesn't matter so much whether your parents were rich or poor. So of course, you have a much better chance of getting the college degree if your parents were rich. But once you cross that hurdle, the gaps are smaller. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller talking with Alexander Kilowald about wealth inequality, which is one of the aspects of inequality that doesn't get a lot of attention when we talk about income inequality. And I want to bring into this discussion Alan Berube of the Brookings Institution, who studies geography and inequality. And Alan, in 2016, you ranked cities in terms of inequality. The top five were Boston, New Orleans, Atlanta, Cincinnati, and Providence, Rhode Island. So that means that the people in the top five percent of households were making between 15 and 18 times as much as people in the bottom 20 percent of households. But you also looked at metropolitan areas, so not just cities, but the whole surrounding area. And there, New York City and the San Francisco Bay Area were right there on top. So what's going on with cities in terms of inequality as far as you can see? So I think the, the principal issue that uh, these cities are facing is that they have increasingly a smaller and smaller share of their tax base on which they rely to fund an increasing proportion of critical public services, safety schools, transportation. And meanwhile, while this is all happening in cities, what is happening in suburbs as it relates to poverty? Tell me what you found. Sure. I mean, I think a lot of the dynamics that we're talking about with inequality in cities are are not at all limited to the to the cities themselves, right? They're a function of the economic structure and the evolution of the wider regions within within which those cities sit. So poverty has shifted from cities to suburbs over a you know three or four decade span, such that actually there are more poor people living in the suburbs of major metropolitan areas today than in their big cities. And you can see that in the data that essentially the suburbs have gotten poorer over time. Yeah, the 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 rate of poverty that is the share of the population that lives below 
the federal poverty threshold um, is still quite a bit higher in cities than it is in suburban areas. It's it's almost twice as high in cities. Hmm. But in terms of where most poor people live, uh, the suburbs have grown a lot faster than cities have. And part of that growth has been in low-income families, low-income households, low-income workers. Um, so actually about 58% of poor people who live in major metropolitan areas today live outside the big cities. So I wonder, and I, I wonder this from both of you, but Alexander, we can start with you. Are there ways to try to, you know, as we have this situation where there's this, there's a very huge gap um, in wealth between the top and the bottom, are there ways to change that? Because of the role of education in passing wealth across generations, I think that access to high-quality schools and, in general, weakening the association between the economic circumstances of your parents and the education that you end up achieving would be a really productive way to reduce the gap in wealth. Another thing in terms of the gap by race lines is certainly more active enforcement of anti-discrimination policies. We know that housing markets, both real estate markets in terms of what kinds of homes buyers of different races get shown, as well as discrimination in mortgage terms or even the terms of vehicle loans. All these things contribute to disadvantaging African Americans and just more active enforcement of anti-discrimination policy could be helpful. And Alan, what do you see remedies here, policy prescriptions here that either, you know, that cities could take advantage of, that that states could, uh, that the, the, the federal government could? Yeah, um, sure. sure. And, that, and that's certainly something that we're tracking and, and thinking about, I guess it the, the frame matters. And I think to the extent that mayors try to set themselves up as uh, tackling or erasing inequality, that might be a losing battle because so much of what inequality is about is, is increasingly about is what's going on at the top and is a function of a global economy and superstar employees that can command very, very high salaries and then sort of choose whatever city they want to locate in to, to get those salaries. What I think matters more for local and regional and, and state policymakers and maybe what they ought to be training their firepower at is mobility, right? Is how do we make sure that sort of where where you're born into, the family that you're born into doesn't sort of consign you to a life that's inextricably linked to that income. So I think part of it is just dealing with the framework, especially when you're a local policymaker and you just can't tax the rich into oblivion because they'll just move somewhere else, right? So thinking not only about inequality as the target, but actually thinking about how do I promote economic mobility and economic diversity in my city. I think that's what we're looking at and that's what we're, we're trying to get cities to think about. Uh, something I've been struck by as we were talking that seems to kind of bridge these two different uh, areas of research is the role of housing. I think both in the rental market and in real estate, that's an important aspect of both the causes of growing inequality and the consequences. So the effort to find affordable housing is some of the consequences, the real consequences for people's um, well-being if they have safe and affordable housing. And then on the wealth side also, homes are the single largest asset for most middle-class Americans. It's the largest part of their wealth portfolio. And owning a home has a lot of implications financially for folks through the appreciation of the home, through the tax breaks. And also, your mortgage payment acts as kind of a commitment device to savings. So I think that's one way that we kind of bring together here the suburbanization aspect as well as the wealth accumulation. 
And yeah, and I would add, there is a term that we call the segregation tax, which reflects the fact that, you know, in our metropolitan areas, many of which are still very highly segregated by race and by income, a black homeowner, I'm going to, I'm not sure I'm going to get the the numbers exactly right, but, uh, you know, black homeowner with an income of $100,000 lives in you know, on average, in the same kind of neighborhood as a white homeowner with an income of about thirty thousand dollars. Whoa, that is a huge difference. I thought you were going to yeah, say so... eighty thousand dollars or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So they're not getting access to the same quality communities, in, probably in terms of the schools that they have access to, in terms of the jobs that they have access to. But the value of the asset that they have acquired is not going to appreciate the same rate as the asset for a white homeowner with a $100,000 income, right? Because just the the amenities, right? The desirability of that location, not as strong. And so it's not going to be as valuable an asset for themselves and and for their children going forward. So actually, one more thing. Uh, We talked about how do you solve this? But where do you actually see these trend lines going? So not how would you want them to go, but where are they going? I guess I'm not... I'm not terribly hopeful that the the market economy is going to sort of self-correct in ways that alleviate some of the challenges that we're seeing today. I think if you want to mitigate some of the issues that inequality creates, public actors and public institutions are just going to have to do more. That doesn't only mean to, you know more taxes and more redistribution. Uh, I think it means thinking about some of the public investments we were talking about, thinking about what we ask corporations to do in terms of paying certain wage levels, investing in their workers in different ways, enabling their workers to share in profits in different ways. Again, I'm, I'm a little pessimistic about the future of pre-tax, pre-public sector inequality, but I think the fact that there are more folks talking about it, more folks interested in what the collective can do about it does give me some grounds for optimism. And Alexander, you think so much about wealth and like how much we have in our bank account and how much is sitting there, you know, in our house, uh, the kind of how much our house is worth. What do you see happening as we go forward? What does the trajectory seem like to you? Sadly, I agree completely with Alan. Uh, I think that the market forces are in the direction of tending to increase inequality. I think also that significant macroeconomic shocks can have real implications. So the Great Recession was a time when the black, white, and and white Hispanic wealth gaps hit their highest um, level in several decades because the recession hit minority households particularly hard. So I think that to some extent, those kinds of shocks have the power to make inequality trends even worse. So like Alan, I think that the chances for inequality to be reduced in pre-tax, pre-transfer trends is not great and that uh, redistributive efforts are necessary in order to reverse these kinds of trends. Alexander Killewald is a professor of sociology at Harvard and Alan Bruby is a senior fellow and deputy director at the Brookings Institution's Metropolitan Policy Program. He's also a co-author of Confronting Suburban Poverty in America. Thanks so much to both of you. Thanks, Kara. Thank you. Thank you. 
On our Facebook page, we've got more about wealth inequality versus income inequality, and the differences are striking. That's at facebook.com slash innovation hub radio. Support for Innovation Hub comes from Cambridge Savings Bank. Introducing the CSB1 package, a checking account combined with investing through Connect Invest to help you build a better tomorrow. CambridgeSavings.com/CSB1